How many, how many parents do we have here that have children in the house younger than 12? Okay, let me, all right, let me ask this then. Give, let me have just one hand per family unit. Okay, all right, that, that helps. Okay, some of you I know already have this book, A Child's Profession of Faith. Okay, so if you already have this book and you have a child in your house that's under the age of 12, you can put your hand down. If you don't have this book and you have a child in your house younger than 12, you can put your hand up so that you can get a book. No, no. How are we doing? Did the Tullys get one? You already have one? Okay, well, you got to get back from your sister. Okay, yeah, all right. All right, who else are we? Are we over here? Okay. When you start getting a family, you have to start with distant before you start moving in. Maybe you could talk to your husband and he could, yeah. Okay. Let's do this. All right, so if you just got, oh, let me say this. If you're here and you are a parent with children under the age of 12, or no, 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 let's, let's, even, make, let's even expand the circle a little bit. If you're here tonight, you're a parent, and you have kids in the house, and you would like a copy of that book, if you email me, the church will buy you a copy of that book so that you can put it on your shelf and refer to it as needed. So whether your child is under the age of 12 or not, the only stipulation is you have to have children living under your roof, all right, and you don't already have a copy of the book. So we're not doing duplicates. So Carla, for example, could email me and say, I didn't get a book because you gave one to Cassie instead of giving one to me. And I would say, oh, okay, Carla, the church will order a book for you. So if, if you're a parent with kids in the house and you want one, this is geared more towards younger kids, although the, the stuff in there is, is good and would be appropriate if you can um, project it out. And then let me, I, I don't have copies to give away of this one, but let me make reference to this parents of all ages. If you have not seen or gotten your hands on this book by Chap Bettis, B-E-T-T-I-S, The Disciple-Making Parent, you need to get a copy. All right, this is, as far as parenting books goes, this is probably as close to a must-have as, as you can get in Christian books outside of outside of scripture, all right? This is really good, really solid. This is one of those books where you can read it, to co you can read it cover to cover and you'll get a lot out of it. You're not gonna retain everything, so you're gonna read it and you're gonna put it on the shelf and you're gonna pull it back down from time to time to refer to it again as questions pop into your mind or as you say, I wonder if good old chap has something to say about this, that, or the other. Chap and I are on first name basis. He doesn't know that, but. Okay. This needs to go to a man. Someone mentioned to me that when we had our member meeting, not only did we have, uh, were all of the new members that we were voting in women except for one, Thomas Swarm, I think they also pointed out that, all, that everyone who got a book last week was a woman. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. So thank you, men, for being so humble and generous to let the women move in front. Tonight is your night, though, so I've got books, and they have to get into the hands of men. Here are the three books that I have. I've got A Praying Life by Paul Miller. This is not a quick read, but it is an easy read and very profitable. So A Praying Life. We've got another booklet, What If I Don't Feel Like Going to Church, and then we've got another of the Holy Helps for a Godly Life. All right, so... Do I have any men in here who are willing to say, I will take a free book? All right, Adam, you raise your hand. You get, you get dibs. Prayer? Prayer? Praying life. Which one? This one? Okay. Over here, Jamie, you get, what if I don't feel like going to church? 
which you obviously don't need because you're here. But you probably know someone who needs it. Okay, let me open us up with a word of prayer, and, uh, and we'll get started. Uh, actually, we'll get started after I find my Bible. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for this evening. We ask that, uh, that you would give us clarity of thought and speech as we talk and uh, as we reason through your word. Uh, Father, we recognize that there are, um, that to a certain extent, Scripture does not speak as directly to some of these issues about a child's profession of faith, at least not as directly as what we would like. Um, and so we don't want to reason beyond um, the grounds that we have in Scripture, and yet we don't want to be uh, passive in the way that we think about these things. We want to rightly understand and apply your truth. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that for us by your spirit as you give us wisdom and understanding. We ask that this would, if anything, um, be even just a discussion starter for, uh, for parents and grandparents or uh, church members here at Edgewood as they go about their way to think about how we all, as a church, uh, can raise up a new generation of, uh, of believers, of disciples, to, uh, to grow and advance your kingdom. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Okay, so if you have a handout, everyone have a handout? Did we have any left over, Brian? Okay. Brian, if you want to put it on the little stand back there, dead center. All right, the need for discernment in a child's profession of faith. This is not, if you're looking at the handout, you can probably tell by the look of it that this is not polished or uh, anything that is ready for broad consumption or publishing or anything like that. This is uh, a meager attempt to break down in sort of uh, small categories things that we probably ought to consider when we're talking about children. And for, all, for, for our purposes tonight, when I'm talking about children, I'm generally talking about like maybe 11 or 12 and younger, all right? And even then on the younger end, probably thinking around maybe kindergarten age, four at the youngest, because typically you're, well, I'll save that for another time. So we're just trying to break things down in categories. Let, let's start with the three bullet points that you have at the top of the page that just sort of sets the uh, lays the groundwork for, uh, for what we're going to be talking about here. First bullet point that you have at the top of the page, the desire to see our children come to faith in Christ is right and good. However, too often our desires get in the way of our discernment. Right. Truth of the matter is, is that if you are a parent who loves the Lord and who believes that what the Scriptures have presented as truth in terms of the offer of salvation to men and women who are destined for God's judgment unless they find salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that, you desperately want your children to have that. That desperate desire, if we can frame it that way, is good and wholesome. That is something that God works into the hearts of parents, of grandparents, of anyone that has a good relationship with a young child, if not simply for the fact that we want what is best for them. All, right, all the more so if we have a personal attachment to them or some sort of a relational tie or bind. There is nothing that we want more than to know that eternity has been settled and there is nothing left to hang in the balance as far as our children are concerned. The difficulty with that, though, is that because that, that desire to see our children come to Christ is so intense and, and can be so palpable, I mean, you know, you can almost taste it, that because you're so eager to see that happen, and as an adult, because you know about the fragility of life and you know that there are all kinds of twists and turns and that you can't bank on tomorrow, you don't know what the future holds, right? You, you're so amped up in that respect that you will take anything that you see or hear and say, that's it. There it is. That's faith. 
And unfortunately, I think what happens a lot of times with, with all of the best intentions, especially in a, a church setting or uh, in a setting in which families are growing up within a church and children are being, uh, are being taught and being instructed in the home, outside of the home when they come to church, oftentimes with the best of intentions, we're grasping for uh, for that evidence or any sign of proof that we can have. And once we feel like we have it and we latch onto it, we essentially confer that. We give that kind of affirmation over to our child or our children when in fact there may not be any real credible evidence of genuine faith. So we want to say at the outset, the fact that we feel as, as family, the fact that we feel this tension and this pressure, for lack of a better word, when it comes to the conversion of our children, that is normal and that is to be expected. It would be surprising and shocking if you did not care about the eternal state of your children. So that is good. The problem, though, is when our hearts run far ahead of our minds and we don't apply God's wisdom and discernment to what can be uh, a very difficult situation sometimes. Second bullet point, in light of that, if there is a need for discernment, we want to say and we want to acknowledge up front that the Scriptures are our guide for discerning evidence of saving faith, even in a child. One of the things that we, that we probably don't consider enough is that is that we, we almost know without even having to think twice about it that as adults when we go to the scriptures we know that there are multiple places in, in the Bible where we see what the signs and the evidence of, of genuine faith is. We see the importance of a profession or a confession of Christ as Savior and Lord but we know that a mere profession in and of itself is not foolproof evidence of genuine salvation. We recognize that as adults, but for some reason, again, I think it's in part just because of our heart's desires for our children, when it comes to evaluating the profession or the claim that a young child may make to faith in Christ, it's as if we don't consider anything that the Scripture says about what the evidence of, of saving faith is, what the results are, what does fruit look like, how do you discern a credible profession from a disingenuous profession of faith. It's, a, it's like we just throw it out the window and we simply take, take at face value what we hear from our children and run happily off into the, into the sunset. But if ultimately, even as a child, if the predicament of a child, that is, that they are a sinner from the moment of conception to the day that they die, a sinner in need of God's justifying grace, if their condition is the same as our condition, although the, the particulars or the details may differ because of their young minds or their young hearts, at root, you're still addressing the same basic issues. And, and we'll come to that in a minute. But that's why we say you still, even for children, are going to need to draw on what the Scriptures say when it comes to trying to discern whether or not there is new life here or whether or not this child is making a credible profession of faith. Bullet point number three, and this sort of goes hand in hand with, that, uh, with what we just mentioned. Jesus' own teaching reminds us that much that looks like or sounds like saving faith is not genuine. So, Matthew 7, if you have your Bibles, you probably want to turn to a couple of these passages. We won't turn to all of them, but we'll do the Matthew 7 and the Mark 4. So this is... This is the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is beginning to wrap things up. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are the ones who will enter. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a sobering passage that Jesus gives to say that there will be people at the end of the day, right, the real end of the day, when Christ is settling all accounts, there will be people who will, to use the language that we're using now, am I going out with the sound? A connection issue on my end? Okay. Okay. There will be people who at the end of the day will make a profession. They will call Christ Lord. And to a certain extent, you could say, they will even have what appears to be the work of a Christian, right? Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And yet Christ will say, you're not one of mine. I never knew you. And if that is a real concern when it comes to false professions or disingenuous confessions of Christ, that needs to be something on the forefront of our minds when we're considering our children as well. Mark chapter 4, turn over just a couple more pages over to the next gospel in Mark. This is where you have uh, the parable of the soils. And just for the sake of time, let's skip to the latter part of it where Jesus is explaining what the different soils represent. So skip down to, uh, let's see, verses, let's see, 13. Yeah, let's start at verse 13, Mark 4, 13. And Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the, all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. All right, so just to pull one of these out. There is, a, there is a category or a class of person that Jesus refers to that will hear the word of the gospel or they will hear the good news preached and they quote-unquote receive it and receive it gladly. They receive it with joy. And it looks like they are skyrocketing in their growth, but Jesus says it doesn't take long for reality to be borne out, which is that they have real, no real root in the gospel or in the kingdom. They end up withering and fading away. One of the questions we need to ask is, is it possible that that is a scenario that could play out even with children? That young children can hear the good news about the salvation that's offered in Christ, and for a host of different reasons can receive or welcome that good news, can have some measure of a positive response to it, and yet at the end of the day, there not really be any firm root in God's Word, there not be any firm root in the life of the kingdom, so that they seem to receive the truth of the gospel, they seem to profess faith, but 5, 10, 20 years down the road, they look nothing like someone who has their roots sunk down deep into the Word of God and who are growing and thriving through faith in the life of the Spirit. Is it possible for that to happen with children? I think you have to say yes, unless you're going to say that children in their pristine youthfulness are just more pure than the rest of us. 
They're not, okay? The only difference between a child and an adult is that they, the child has not had as much time for the seeds of their wickedness to bear fruit. All of the, all of the bent nature, all of the iniquity, the transgressive tendencies in human nature apart from Christ, that is present in the child from day one. They don't have the ability to act on it in the same way than an, than an adult would. They can't actualize it, but it's there. And their hearts are dark. Their hearts are in desperate need of God's light shining to bring His truth to bear. And their hearts are capable of responding, at least in some token form, to quote-unquote good news, and yet it not be a genuine heart felt or heart-generated response, at least as far as a regenerated heart is concerned. So with all that being said, if Jesus himself says that evaluating things like conversion or regeneration or when people profess to have faith or to know Christ as Lord, if even Jesus says that is a difficult thing to do, because the human heart is so deceptive and so difficult to read, in some ways there are some things about children that while on the one hand makes them more receptive to what it is that they hear, also makes it more difficult to recognize whether or not it's actually worked into their heart and mind. So this is, this is the heading, Reasons for Caution. Number one, children are impressionable. We shouldn't be surprised if they imitate those around them. So if you are a parent and if you are doing by God's grace and with a reliance on the Holy Spirit, you are doing your level best not only to teach your children but to model for your children what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, right? You want to evidence the fruit of the Spirit in your own life, and your children are in that kind of environment. They, they soak that in. They will begin to pick up on those things. They will in some way even be able to imitate the behaviors and the conduct that for you is Spirit-generated, but for them is flesh-generated, right? They can, they can, they can pre present some sort of a carbon copy or some sort of a facsimile of what they're seeing from you because this is what life is supposed to look like. And when everyone gets together with mom and dad, they talk like this or they don't talk like that. They do this, but they don't do that, right? They, they just naturally gravitate towards the kind of life that you are presenting to them. They're impressionable. Number two, Children, by nature, want the affirmation and approval of their parents. Some of you say, oh, you don't know my Johnny. He doesn't care about my affirmation. No, he, he really does, right? Young children especially are hardwired to want to hear words of affirmation from mom and dad or from grandma and granddad, from whoever it is that they look up to and they value the most, they want to know that that individual approves of what they're doing. They want to make them happy. Therefore, or in consequence, because they have a natural tendency or a natural desire to want affirmation and approval, when young children begin to figure out that what makes mom and dad most happy is when we talk about Jesus, or what gets mom and dad most excited is when I say something about Jesus, right? That's a no-brainer. I want mom and dad to be happy with me. It's better than mom and dad not being happy with me. And so they will say all kinds of good and right and even true things, but once again, we don't quite know what the root motivation or what's in the seat of the heart or the affections that's driving 
those statements or those behaviors. So they're impressionable. They seek out approval and affirmation. By the way, another way to say this is that if your child is in a home or has the added blessing of having other Christian influences, it, it would actually be surprising if they don't imitate those things and if they don't begin to pick up on that language, right? Kids are, nat or kids are just, in general, they are going to begin to repeat the things that they hear and that they're learning. If they are in any kind of a Christian environment of any weight or of any substance, it would be a surprise if they didn't begin to imitate those things, right? That would be normal. We tend to think, or we often approach it as, if they begin to imitate our language and our talk, oh my goodness, this is a miracle. It may be, it may be, but at the same time, recognize and know the general tendencies and proclivities and dispositions of a child that make it more likely that they will imitate and repeat these things. And in recognizing that, be willing to admit that just because they are following the leader, mom and dad, does not necessarily mean that they are following Christ. Number three, under reasons for caution. Training up a child takes time. So the, the, here are two passages that we want to look at. One Old Testament, one New Testament. So go back to Deuteronomy 6. JT was actually reading from this this morning in the parent-baby dedication. Start at verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Oh, yeah, well, that's where we say to start in the reference on the paper. So there you go. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you could put in parentheses, and daughters, right? Sons and daughters, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, a couple things to notice here. First off, the main addressees in the early verses here, say in verses 4 through 6, appears to be adults. This is not to say that the command to love the Lord and to have His words in your heart, loving God and loving His Word. That's not to say that, those, that that command is not to be given to children, but first and foremost, it seems like these commands are being given to the adults in the nation because then it turns and it says, now you teach these things to your children. So here's one of the things that needs to be recognized. The first command, the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord your God. Why doesn't the Lord say, and you, by the way, parent, you turn and you tell your child to love the Lord his God too? He doesn't do that. He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, let these words be on your heart, so you're going to be loving God's Word, and then you turn and you teach. By the way, by implication, I think what the parent is doing is teaching out of their love and reverence for the Lord. So if I can pause here for a minute, parents, what you love, you will impart to your kids. You can't help but talk about the things that you love. You ask my kids what their dad loves, and they'll be able to tell you whether it's embarrassing or not. Oh, my dad loves the Atlanta Falcons. How do you know? Because he talks about it, even when we don't want to talk about it. Because the only time we see him cry is when he's watching a football game, right? That, 
jo well, I'm kind of joking. <laughs> there are a lot of tears, right? No, your, your kids know what it is that your heart is set upon because the human heart is wired in such a way that we want to give voice to the things that give us joy. Our joy is magnified when it's shared with someone else. And so if you love the Lord and you love His Word, you will find ways to talk about that with your children. So the implication here, I think, the, the overall in terms of the, the perfection that we're driving for is don't just teach or instruct your kids out of a sense of duty and responsibility. Yes, you have a responsibility to do that, but really let the driving factor and the influence be your love for the Lord and because you want that love to be shared by your child as well. But having said that, though, notice that what is being said to the parents here or to the adults in the nation concerning the children is that as you love the Lord and as you love His Word, you, out of your love for God and His Word, you turn and you teach that, you instruct the children in what they are to know with the assumption that they will learn to love the things that they ought to love. In other words, they don't come into this world loving what they ought to love. They don't. They are little sinners by nature, just like mom and dad are sinners by nature, and we were not born into this world loving the things that we ought to love, namely God. You have to teach them and you have to instruct them. More, more to the point, or along that same point, it's not just that you sit down and you teach them during their kindergarten year and you say, okay, Junior, I hope you get all this because you got one shot at it. And then, right, the information dump. But this teaching and this instruction is meant to characterize your way of life as a family. This is a regular ongoing, durative process. It does not happen once, and then you ask, are you ready to sign on the dotted line? No. In order for God's instruction to sink in and to take, you have to come back to it over and over and over and over. Let me show you another place in the New Testament, the Second Timothy passage, where you have something of the same idea being borne out in a slightly different way. Second Timothy 3:14 and 15. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Here's, here's something to note. I think this, the, the, uh, the Chap Bettis book, The Disciple-Making Parent, I think this was, he, he keys in hard on this, and it was sort of an eye-opening experience for me as a, as a parent, so I'm sharing that with you now. Notice that Paul seems to differentiate when he is talking about Timothy's own life experience. He says in verse 14, Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. It is possible to learn the Christian faith and not be convinced that the Christian faith is true. Yes? Right? There are, I have on, I have on my shelf, in my office, I have books written by authors who meticulously pour through biblical history or the biblical text, and they can bring all kinds of insight into what's going on here and what's happening. They don't believe any of it, none of it. They can tell you what it says, and because they don't care, because it has no, no binding power on them, in some ways they almost feel more free just to let the Scripture speak because they don't have any skin in the game. Right? But they can tell you very clearly what the Scriptures teach. They don't believe it at all. 
your children, our children, can learn very well Christian doctrine. They can learn the Romans road, the plan of salvation, all those things. They can know it. They can repeat it. They can recite it back. But the mere fact that they have learned it does not necessarily mean that they themselves have been convinced and persuaded by it. Along those same lines in verse 15, notice Paul also says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that's the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Once again, I think we could say it is possible to know the scriptures, to be familiar with them, even in some respect to be comfortable as we move through them and yet not have the wisdom that leads to salvation. We don't see God's Word for what it actually is. All of these points then, reasons for caution, are just simply to say this. If our children are by nature impressionable, if they are by nature seeking approval and affirmation from mom and dad or grandma and granddad and stuff like that, if instruction is not something that happens in a small window of time, but happens over a period of time, it takes repetition over and over again, we ought to pump the brakes when little Johnny or little Susie comes running to us to, to make some bold pronouncement about the Christian faith, and we want to say, okay, wait a minute, depending on age and maturity and what's being articulated and what's being said, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm, I don't want to jump too quickly in and say the first positive sign I see of a response to what they're being taught is itself a guarantee that they're now in. Again, for a parent, much of that is a good and right desire for our children to be united to Christ. But that mindset also yields itself to the tendency that we begin to think about our children and their profession of faith as sort of a point-in-time thing, almost like if I can get them to profess faith, right, just to say the words, my job's done, they're safe, we're good, we can be happy ever after. That's not the picture that you have in Scripture. That's not the picture you have in Scripture for adults, much less for children who don't know what is in store for them in a hostile world that is going to oppose them and their faith at every turn. Reasons for caution, reasons for comfort. Number one, some people say, okay, but wait a minute, Merritt. So what you're basically saying, or what it seems like you're saying is, is that it doesn't matter what children say because they're so young or because they're so immature or because it takes so long. Therefore, we can't ever be confident of the fact that our kids are going to come to faith in Christ. And my fear is, is that I go too far in the other direction and I'm too slow in recognizing what's happening right there in front of me and I blow it and I wreck it, right? I don't want to be too fast. I don't want to put the seal of approval on a counterfeit product, but at the same time, I don't want to withhold that affirmation if there is genuine conversion there. Here's the comforting thing. If you are going to err, if you're going to err, you are probably better off erring on the side of caution and slow, deliberate approach because the risk of affirming a child's profession of faith too early is that you give them a false assurance of faith. On the other side, if you are perhaps, and sometimes this happens, right, you can, you can drag your feet. You can be so concerned about affirming a false profession that you, you just feel like you can never pull the trigger, so to speak. You know, well, maybe when he's 25, maybe then we can go talk to the pastor. Right? But here's the thing. On the other side, if they really have been brought to the Lord, if their hearts have been regenerated, if they have had their new birth, your affirmation does not make them any more or any less saved. 
right? So thief on the cross? Who, what aisle did the thief on the cross walk? Hey, Jesus, remember me. Yeah, today. You'll be with me in paradise. Didn't walk an aisle. There was no organ music. No baptism. He had no member interview. He passed no doctrinal test. And it made no difference. Because there was faith that had been worked in his heart, and because his heart drew him to confess Christ as Savior, even in that momentary imperfect experience, that was all that was necessary for his salvation to be realized. Our affirmation as adults does not bring someone into the kingdom. It also does not keep someone out if they genuinely belong to the Lord. The Lord knows who are his. Number two, while we want to be careful about children making a profession of faith and us running too quickly to count that as genuine, we don't want to totally discount what we're hearing because at the very least, a child who says something good and right about Christ as Savior and their desire to ask Jesus into their heart or to be in heaven with Jesus or however they phrase it or explain it, at the very least, what we can say is that they're articulating, even in a childlike way, those truths about the Christian faith are evidence of the fact that they're hearing good and right things. So I don't want you to think that, that be, for the sake of discernment or being deliberate, you need to be so cynical, right, or so jaded that when your five-year-old comes to you or, you know, the neighbor kid or something like that, and they say something positive or something that sounds genuinely sincere, right, you don't need to shrug that off. You don't need, oh, what do you know, kid? Get out of here. Come back in another 15 years. You, you can actually encourage and affirm what it is that they're saying, at least to the extent that they are saying something that's good and right, and be thankful about the fact that they are hearing what is true. So mom and dad, if your kid comes and they're beginning to say some of the things that they hear you talking about, even if you still need to show discernment, that is a good sign that they're hearing what they need to hear, that their little minds, even though they may not fully comprehend it, that at least their little minds are hearing and being turned to things of eternal significance. That's something to celebrate and to rejoice over, not something to dismiss or to shrug off. And then number three, and this sort of goes hand-in-hand hand with, uh, with the first one. Ultimately, the Lord saves. Who saves? The Lord saves. I don't save my children. My wife does not save my children. You don't save your children. No one saves anyone but the Lord. But here's the good news. Because it's the Lord who's in the business of salvation, and because the Lord is good to save, when he sets about to save a child or a teenager or an adult or a senior adult, what's going to get in the way? Not your bumbling. That's not going to stop God. Your imperfection is not going to thwart God's perfect work. Even if you were to try, you couldn't stop Him. So at the end of the day, we want to say, although we want to be good, responsible stewards in the way that we shepherd and nurture our children... We want to show caution. We also want to show an enthusiasm and an excitement when they show signs of the fact that they're listening and that they're picking up on things. And we want to rest confident in the fact that because the Lord is the one who saves and He does not need any of us, that takes a tremendous amount of pressure off of my shoulders. I don't want to be apathetic 
I don't want to be lax, but I want to recognize salvation is of the Lord. And that's where my confidence is resting and where it's lying. So, having said all that, because you want to be cautious, because you want to also be comforted by the fact that the Lord may show signs of spiritual work going on in the heart and mind of your children, my encouragement to you would be if you have a young child who comes and who makes some sort of a profession of faith, and that, and that oftentimes, depending on the kind of language that they're accustomed to hearing, that could be something like, Mom, I asked Jesus into my heart, or I asked God to forgive me for my sins, or, right, you fill in the blank. I'm not sure what you may or may not have heard, you know, from your kids or grandkids when they were growing up, okay? What, what you would probably, what I would encourage you to do is not dismiss it out of hand, but also don't be so quick to say, oh, well, that's it, he's in, let's dunk him now. Why don't you start by asking some diagnostic questions? So, diagnostic questions, these are in no certain order, and I'll run through them fairly quickly. One, do they know the gospel? If Paul says in Romans 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. If you don't hear the good news about what Christ has done, you cannot be saved. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel that he preached to the Corinthians is what they stand on, what they stand in. It is what has brought them into salvation, which again is another place, another way for Paul to say there is no salvation that comes apart from hearing and believing the good news. So one basic fundamental question that we ought to ask even of children, do they know the gospel? All right? I'm going to put some pressure on you parents in this respect. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not looking for a response. This is rhetorical. All right? Maybe one of the bigger questions even is, do you know the gospel? If I ask you as a parent and say, okay, one of the things that you want to do when, as you're talking with your kids, you want to listen or you want to ask some of these diagnostic questions, does my little child who says that they believe that, that Jesus has forgiven them or saved them, that they want Jesus to be their Savior, right? If you were to ask, do they know the gospel? If you think about that in your head and you say to yourself, well, I don't know how to determine whether or not they know the gospel, that probably is an indication that you need to be more solid on the gospel, right? In which case, you can get very helpful, very clear, concise little books like What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert. Make a mental note. You can listen to the recording a little while later. You can go there. You get in your own head, in your own heart, nail down what the gospel is so that you can not only teach that to your children, but so that you can look and know if your child is showing evidence of the fact that they know at least the basic truth of the gospel. Because if they don't even have the facts, the objective reality of the gospel, what is it that they're responding to? Second question, do they know that they are sinners? Do they show evidence of the fact that they conceive of themselves as having done bad things? They, they may explain or they may say it in, in childlike language, but do they know themselves to be guilty sinners who need to be forgiven or cleaned or something, do they have a sense of guilt about their sin? You say, oh, well, that, that's just too heavy for a child. Well, if it's too heavy for a child, I don't know that they're ready for the gospel, right? You don't turn to a Savior if you don't think you need to be saved. Do they show evidence that they recognize themselves even in a young, childlike way, but do they show evidence of the fact that they recognize themselves as being sinners, that they disobey God, that they do bad things that they should not do? Another question, do they bear the fruit of repentance and faith? 
That sort of goes hand in hand with, with do they recognize themselves as sinners? What, what, do they, what do they do? What do they want to do as they begin to recognize that they're sinners? Do they hate their sin? Are they uncomfortable with it? Are they sorry for it? And are they beginning to see and understand why it is that they have to trust Jesus to save them from their sin because they can't save themselves? Do they show a sensitivity to spiritual matters? Do they receive God's word and obey? So when you as a parent are teaching your children, this is what God says. Let me give you a very basic one. God says, Anthony, Sean, Seth, Aaron, Leah, God says, obey your parents. That's an easy one, right? What parent doesn't want to teach their child, obey your parents? All right, but listen, that's what God says. Someone who has a heart that loves the Lord, that loves his word, will hear with the ears of faith, will hear that command as coming from the Lord, and they will want to obey it. That's part of what new life is means. So when they hear the word, or if they're able to read themselves, and they read God's word, how do they respond to it? Do they show an interest in it? Do they show a desire to want to obey the things that they're being taught, the things that they're reading? Next one, have they felt the pull of sin or the pull of the world and rejected it for Christ's sake? Now this is a big one, it's a heavy one. What, what kid can answer a question like that? Well, that's kind of the point, right? Many times when you look at the Gospels, Jesus says, here is what salvation looks like. Salvation looks like taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following me. Does, does, a, does your child show any sign or evidence of the fact that one of the things that it means to follow Jesus is that they have to put their own preferences or desires or whims to the side so that they can be obedient to Christ. Some of this may be too much for them to grasp and understand, but that's exactly the point. If it's too much for them to grasp and understand at this moment, the very last thing that you want to do, even though your intentions are good, is to say, oh, well, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll learn that five or ten more years down the road. In the meantime, let's get you baptized. Do they show some recognition that there is a, the pull of sin in the world, and yet do they show or evidence a desire to obey Christ and not the world? Another one, the last one that we have on the list, there are others that you could ask. Do they evidence a heart of obedience and or frustration at their inability to obey? One good sign... It may be counterintuitive, but one good sign of a real spiritual work going on in the heart and the mind of a child may not necessarily be that all of a sudden they go from being this handful, this terror on the playground, to now being a perfect angel. That could be a sign, okay? Another sign could be that you're still seeing a lot of the same kinds of behaviors, but what you're noticing now that's starting to creep in is a dissatisfaction or a discontent with those behaviors. Because of the fact that God is working on their heart and bringing conviction, even the youthful conviction that comes on the heart of a child, they will get frustrated and they will, at times, even voice their frustration or their disappointment that they did not obey like they were supposed to. Now, once again, you have to be very, very careful. Is this just behavior modification? Is this just seeking approval and affirmation from mom and dad? Or is it possible that, no, this is a genuine, heartfelt experience. God is working on their heart. He is convicting them of things like sin, righteousness, and judgment. They want to do what's right, but they find themselves unable to do it. That has all of the hallmarks of a sinner who recognizes that he needs God's grace. In which case, you want to encourage that kind of thinking and that kind of reasoning, and you want to reinforce that, not by saying, oh, well, you're not really that bad. Don't say that. 
right? If anything, you want to identify with your child as a sinner and say something like, that's why we need Jesus. Because when he tells us to obey, we don't obey the way that we should. And we should be punished, but we can have forgiveness, right? You, you go on and you work yourself into the gospel message. Last thing, going forward. Just some parting words of encouragement. One thing to do when you're talking about uh, uh, the teaching instruction that you give to, to your child is to think in categories that are more lined up or, or, um, or labeled more by things like conversion and new birth or discipling more so than profession of faith. By that I mean this. Oftentimes, again, because we so much desire our kids to profess Christ, it's like we're waiting for those words to be said so that we can check off the box and it's done. And that's, that's not the Christian life. So one of the things that can help us as parents and as grandparents and as a church is to think not so much about did they parrot the right words or the right phrase back. They ought to be able to do that, right? There is a profession and a confession of faith. It's not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. And the more than that is that we need to be thinking more along the lines of in what I'm hearing in this profession of faith is that coming as a result, as the fruit of what appears to be a genuine heart change, regeneration, new birth. Jesus says, you must be born again, John 3. That's what we're after, that's what we're looking for. So think more along those lines than just a simple one and done, did they say the right words, did they pray the right prayer? Number two, be quick to encourage, but slow to affirm. That sounds very harsh, but it really is not. That just goes back to something that we already said. When your child does come to you and does say something that is in line with the truth of God's Word or professing faith in Christ, you don't want to discount that. You don't want to douse them with... I'm missing the expression. Throw uh, rain on their parade. There it is. You don't want to rain on their parade or anything like that. But you also don't need to run so far in the direction of affirmation that you just take as gospel truth and reality anything that your little three-year-old child says to you. Encourage them. Tell them that you want to teach them more, that you want them to grow and love the Lord more, and tell them that you're willing to do that and that you're going to spend more time doing that with them, and then patiently wait to see genuine signs of conversion and new birth. And then number three, pray, teach, and train. If salvation really is of the Lord, the, one of the very best things that you can do as a parent or as a grandparent or as someone who is concerned for the salvation of a child is to pray and to plead with God to intervene in the life of this child and to bring them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ at a very young age. That's an, that is a good thing to pray for. But with that prayer is then also the responsibility that we have as stewards to rightly teach and to rightly train, not just simply to give them the intellectual or the head knowledge, but because this is a way of life, to say, let us teach you the truth about who God is and what he's done in Christ, and let us also train you so that you know what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ. Teaching and training. You want them to know, but you also want them to love and live what it is that they're hearing and what it is that they're seeing from you. All right, you've been very patient. I've run roughshod over this whole thing. For a couple minutes here, any questions or comments that need to be added to fill this out? Mr. Lazary.
a lost person pray to a God that they don't believe in. And I mean, obviously there's goods of that. So what is the what is the biblical precedence of like, hey Caleb, you say prayer at dinner. Like I know we're just trying to encourage them to talk to God. Right. So is there because I don't want them to get a false understanding. I can just talk to this fake thing in the clouds, right? Right. Yeah, the, the question is, if you didn't hear it, what sort of, it, there, there is a little bit of tension here, okay? On the one hand, you're saying that we have to be careful. Our kids aren't born Christians. So how does that work as we're, in, as we're teaching them and as we're training them? So, for example, Brian's example is, how do you teach a child who, does, who is not a believer to pray? Right? Part of this, it, I, I think, that this is difficult, and yes, it is a Pandora's box, so thank you in just the two minutes that we had for asking a question like this. Part of this, I think, does go to the fact that, that uh, even in the New Testament, the Lord makes clear that by virtue of um, the Christian influence of a parent, that there is something that God counts or recognizes in that, that that, that is not irrelevant. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever and has children, you stay married because by virtue of that Christian remaining in the marriage, that marriage is sanctified. In Ephesians and Colossians, when Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, he writes, he addresses children. Right? You ever stop and think about that? So Paul's letter comes to the church at Ephesus. Probably they're going to have someone stand up front and read the letter out loud, starting at 1-1, all the way through six chapters. They'll probably read it in, in, at one time. And they're going to get to the place in Ephesians where it's talking about husbands and wives, fathers, don't exasperate your children, children obey your parents in the Lord. Paul addresses children and tells them to obey their parents. So even if I, we don't necessarily understand all the finer points, at the very least, I think you have precedent in the New Testament to say, well, even Paul addressed children within the congregation. They ought to be addressed too for the sake of training and instruction. By all means, teach them to pray. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the other option is, is that you don't do this with your, with your kids at all, and you and your wife pray privately in the closet, and your kids never hear you pray. You never invite them into family worship or anything like that. That can't be the way it is, right? Uh, Paul Cartwright. Come on, Paul. <laughs> Household baptisms? Is it, is it a cop-out just to say we're not Presbyterians, we're Baptists? Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll just say that. We're not Presbyterians. Yes, Alan. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. And and by the way, parents, just in, in what Alan's saying there, just another reminder, 
it is a, it's a good thing to have your family in church and for you to be able to take advantage of people who have lived this and done this years ahead of you. Like, go to someone, go to an empty nester that you've come to know in the church. If you don't know any empty nesters in the church, get to know some empty nesters in the church. But go and talk to them and ask them, what was it like when you were trying to teach your kid about Christ? What were the challenges that you had? Did you ever encounter this? And you tell them what you're experiencing with your kid and see what kind of feedback and what kind of wisdom and counsel you can get from older, wiser Christians who have been there and done that. And then after you talk with that empty nester, you go and you talk with another one, right? Not, not just them. You need a second opinion. That's biblical, right? In an abundance of counselors, there is victory, not just one. So you talk to many people in the church as you continue to pour over the scriptures and as you continue to pray. All right, I'm going to I'm gonna have to end it here because we're already over, and I think we've got little preschool kids downstairs, right? And they're probably, well... They're downstairs, yes. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you would continue to give us wisdom as we uh, seek to train and instruct and nurture our children in uh, the fear of God and in your admonition. We pray that, uh, that we would uh, be good encouragers, but that we would also um, use good discernment as we, uh, as we watch them and as we direct them and shepherd them in the paths that you have laid out for them. Help us, Father, not to run too far ahead of where you're working and uh, the rate and the process at which your spirit is bringing about change. Um, but do help us, Father, as we're patient to work with confidence and with a settled assurance that we are doing your work and that you delight to work through parents and churches to bring children and young people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.